The views and comments expressed on the Space Show by its guests, callers, and listeners belong to them. The Space Show and its hosts serve only as a platform and are not responsible for others' comments or views. All topics discussed on the Space Show are primarily for educational purposes. Good morning, listeners. Welcome to the Friday morning West Coast Time Zone Space Show program, and I'm your host, David Livingston. Thank you very much for tuning in. A couple of very, very quick announcements. Uh, first of all, we're on the 60-minute format today, so if you would like to speak with our guest, Melody Ashar, who I will introduce in just a minute, uh, make sure you do it within our time constraints, and we certainly appreciate that. Uh, then a couple of other very, very quick announcements. There will be no space show on Sunday. It's Mother's Day, and we typically do not do space show programs on Mother's Day, Father's Day, and other holidays. So um, it's a, a day off for the space show crowd. Uh, I hope um, you can do something family-oriented and, um, and, and have a good time off from listening to the space show, unless you want to listen to archive programs. And then uh, we do resume next week, Tuesday, May 16th, Rebecca Hahn, who's at the, I think it's the University of St. Louis, uh, has done an incredible paper mapping all the volcanoes on Venus, and uh, they sent me a, a copy of it in, in the kind of PR stuff I get for the space show, and I, I asked Rebecca to come on the show and talk about it. She's a Ph.D. student. Uh, she goes by the name of Becca, and uh, so Becca Hahn will be with us Tuesday evening. Um, not sure yet who the Hotel Mars guest will be. Friday is Anna Kreloff, USC chemistry professor who did get out of the Soviet Union, Russia, and uh, she has been a guest before, and she has a Wall Street Journal op-ed and a peer-reviewed paper on what's happening to science and the scientific method and to peer review in our crazy world. And uh, since this uh, applies to space papers and research and physics and stuff that we talk about all the time, I thought Anna should come back on the show and talk about her perspective and the work that she has been doing. And then Sunday, Michelle Hanlon All Moon, from All Moon, All Moon Kind, excuse me, is back with us. And um, we have no more programs due to ISDC until Friday, June 2nd, and John Bucknell on his Space Solar Power uh, Company is then back with us as a guest. So we will have no shows on Tuesday, May 23rd, no Hotel Mars on the 24th, no Friday the 26th, no Sunday the 28th, and then no Sunday the 30th. I am back actually uh, late at night on the 30th if Southwest Airlines does not go on strike and uh, doesn't cancel their flights and strand me in Dallas. I will be back and we will have a Friday, June 2nd program. Uh, so, um, again, our guest today is Melody Yashar and her full bio is on the space show. She's been a guest before. She's a space architect, technologist, and researcher. VP of Building Design and Performance at ICON, which is a construction tech company focused on large-scale additive manufacturing for both Earth and space. Um, she has also been teaching. She uh, has a great education, which you can uh, read about, but also she has her master's in architecture from Columbia and a master's of human-computer interaction for robotics from the School of Computer Science at Carnegie Mellon. And she likes tiny robots, would like to visit the moon, but probably not Mars in her lifetime. She is also speaking 
at ISDC for those of you going. She is delivering a keynote plenary on, um, I guess it's Thursday morning at 8.30 on building uh, for living on the moon and Mars. And then Friday, she's doing a panel at about 8.30 in the morning on women uh, as the next frontier. And she'll be on that panel with others. And she'll be hanging around ISDC for a day or two after that if you would like to meet her and talk with her. Um, don't forget that we are a 501c3 nonprofit with one giant LEAP Foundation. And we do these shows because many of you do support us. We're listener-supported uh, Internet talk radio. And we do have a PayPal link on the upper right of our homepage, thespaceshow.com. And we hope you will use it. Uh, as a 501c3, you do get a tax deduction if you're a U.S. taxpayer, federal taxpayer. If you use Zelle, and many of you do, the email address for a Zelle contribution is david at one giant leap org. That goes directly to the nonprofit's Chase Bank account. And then if you're sending out a check, it is also made payable to one giant leap foundation. It mails to our new Las Vegas address, which is on our PayPal button and our website. Or if for some reason you can't find it or you have a question, please email me at drspace at thespaceshow.com. And uh, we do have sponsors. At the end of this hour, I will read sponsor messages. But our sponsors are Northrop Grumman, Space Foundation, Astrox, AIAA, Celestis, the National Space Society, and Dr. Heim Benaroya. And if you would like to be a sponsor and have a banner ad, have a PR message read on every show, including archives, please email me at drspace at thespaceshow.com. And uh, Melody, welcome back to the Space Show. How are you? Thank you, Dr. Livingston. I'm doing great. Thank you. Thank you so much for the introduction as well. Um, when you started uh, your school and, and going to uh, architecture school at Columbia, were you already uh, dead set on space architecture? I'm, I'm just curious if, uh, if, if, if that came later or um, if that was part of why you wanted to become an architect. That's a great question. I, I always knew that I wanted to do architecture at the intersection of um, design and technology. And I, I was always interested in space and space exploration and really thinking about, like, future human frontiers um, that, that are enabled through exploration and, uh, and technology. But I never really knew that space architecture was a field in and of itself until, until I was well into um, – well, actually, well outside of grad school, frankly – I didn't see any kind of uh, like true commercial prospect for this being a career in and of itself, um, and so that kind of emerged pretty naturally for me and for others that uh, that formed our initial group that competed within NASA's, NASA's Centennial Challenge for a 3D printed habitat on Mars. Um, we had no sort of, uh, let's say, expectations or preconditions that this would become a full-time career for any of us, but it truly was an incubator and an accelerator for us to think about space architecture very seriously, and uh, we were pretty successful, so things kind of evolved very naturally after that, and um, it became clear that there's there's direct opportunity to be thinking about space architecture for multiple aerospace companies and for NASA um, more seriously than than as just a passion project. Is it a a career possibility for 100% space architecture, or would it be part of a career, but you'd still be doing more terrestrial things because space architecture isn't yet fully 100% supported as a career? I, I believe it is supported as a career, particularly within for, for the commercial companies in aerospace that are looking at orbital habitation. I, many of my colleagues and friends within the industry have job titles as space architects at Blue Origin, Axiom, and, and other places. Um, I would say that 
on my end, the focus of my work and my research in the last 10-plus years has been on additive manufacturing and surface habitat. And, you know, like I refer to myself as a space architect just in practice and as far as my research is concerned. But the truth is in in the work that I'm doing right now, the best opportunity that we have to prototype and to demonstrate large-scale construction right here is, is right here on Earth. So for me, um, I, I guess merging my terrestrial practice with the space applications practice is an integral part of answering the relevant questions that we're going to need to have answered for our future in space. Um, I have one more sort of ancient question for you, and then we can get into your, your current work. When the space show started 22 years ago, I did lots of programs on human factors. And uh, mm. Dr. Jim Logan, who you may know, was a, a very, very frequent guest. And uh, so were other uh, doctors with an aerospace medicine background or a participant mm. in the aerospace medical uh, arena. And there was a constant complaint. We're, I'm, I'm literally going back maybe 15 to 20 years. And the complaint was that the capsules and the, and the human spaceflight stuff being designed at the time and even into mm-hmm. the future was being designed by engineers who don't typically talk to doctors or psychologists. So by the time they get a chance to input the design of things that might influence crew safety, longevity, convenience, you know, efficiency. Uh, you have to redo lots of the engineering designs, which are really, really costly, and that there yeah. needed to be more collaboration. Has that collaboration materialized between the engineering side and the, the architecture medical kind of planning side? Oh, I love this question, and I think this gets to the heart of what of, of how we think, the mental model that is typical of systems engineering's workflows versus the, the mental model that is typical of more integrative design thinking or evidence-based design-led solutions. Um, it, there's just a, there will have to be a paradigm shift eventually. And I think on the commercial side and industry, um, people are starting, well, p- groups and, and, and particularly companies are beginning to understand the value of having that sort of um, integral design approach where you have multiple stakeholders at the table from the beginning of a project, identifying needs and requirements early and often so that you're not tied into a hardware or fit a hardware solution or a volumetric solution or a spacecraft that 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 doesn't integrate again the needs of others, be it from from medical or from human factors or wherever. Um, and so that approach is something that I think has been commercially successful, particularly when we're talking about products like Apple, for example, you think about the iPhone and how integral industrial design and ergonomics are relative to that. And in some ways, that is like an iPhone is truly just a software and a hardware product. Um, But I think more and more the aerospace industry is beginning to understand the need for human factor specialists, the need for designers and industrial designers as well as architects who who understand from a more generalist perspective how to integrate various requirements from stakeholders, be it, you know, on the mechanical and electrical side or, or wherever. Um, and, and and I think more and more folks are understanding the value that that can bring to the table. Granted, it might seem like more work at first, um, and I, I would love to speak towards my experience with the Chapia analog that is uh, about to begin, that, that they're about to begin ingress for the analog research experiment uh, at the Johnson Space Center, because I think it's a it's a great example of how, um, I, I, I would say, the opportunity to synthesize requirements from individual research groups and, uh, and disciplines uh, 
they, they, we did our best, you know, but I think that there's definite improvement that can be made in the future, particularly by having space architects and human factor specialists at the table. Um, so you, you mentioned Apple. So mm-hmm. I will um, make kind of a personal statement that really pisses me off about Apple. So um, Apple does these constant, I have an iPhone, by the way, so they do their, these constant updates. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, and sometimes there's security, and, and and sometimes they claim they're improving things. So I'm about to be 77, so I don't think that I'm totally that old, and I, I think I'm still sharp. I'm sharp enough to still do this show. Um, but they do things with the operating system and stuff that really pisses off older people. And and you you look at what they're doing, and maybe it'll change the format for an alert. And you wonder, why the hell are they doing that? And who wants it changed? And who needs it changed? And who wants to get used to an, a new format like that? And we really think they've got some nerds stuffed in closets. And they, they are told, go find different ways to do this, this, and this uh, every quarter. Uh, mm. Now, my kids who are in their late 30s and early 40s, they... They don't have any issue. They don't see it this way. But when you, mm-hmm. you when you start tinkering with things for the sake of tinkering, which is what it looks like, and you're crossing all different age platforms, cultural platforms, uh, educational platforms, and everything, and you totally disregard it, that cannot be for the best. And um, no, you know, I know people cool. who don't want to do. Apple updates because they say it'll it'll change the display and I'm happy with the display I know how to use it and I don't want to get used to something else and and so um, I I don't know if this is a consideration in trying to come up with you know systems and things that are more people friendly or more human uh, medicine friendly or something like that but. I, I think this is a real shortcoming in um, the people who design things and the engineers who make it happen Be, because it just seems like designing something new and different because it's time to do that is, is really infuriating to a lot of people. And, um, and I know other phones do the same thing. I just bring it up because you mentioned Apple. And, uh, and they... They are amazingly good at changing trivia. <laughs> yeah. And I, I I agree with you for what it's worth. I I personally I'm very cautious about allowing those updates to happen on their own automatically and I, I wanna know what the update is before agreeing to it. So I typically postpone it as long as I can until understanding exactly what is going to happen because you're right there's a lot of risk in not knowing what will change and it's it's important for for companies that have a product that ubiquitous like the iphone right that they're introducing an accessible design solution that makes sense for 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 all of their customers i think in space flight we're not really there yet i i we're, we're gonna get closer to it but um by and large like we're designing for um, healthy, able-bodied people, and it—we're it, still at, we're still in the infancy as far as like targeting broader demographics when it comes to spaceflight and and how we design for humans in space. Um, your website has uh, a, lots of different designs for, I guess, how one might live on the moon or Mars. Is that correct? That's correct. Yes. But but they're terrestrial designs, so. Uh, you, you sort of perfect them out or try them out on Earth. Is that the idea? Um, it's a little bit of both. I have uh, quite a few projects that have explored 3D printed habitats on Mars. Um, starting, well, just to go through them chronologically, I had participated as part of a joined group between Search Plus as well as uh, Clouds AO within the Phase 1 NASA Centennial Challenge for 3D printed habitat on Mars. Um, and that initial project won first place. It was referred to as Mars Ice House. Um, that spun off into a project with, uh, that was 
that we collaborated on, the same group collaborated on with NASA Langley, referred to as Mars Ice Home, which was, instead of a 3D printed structure, a filled and frozen inflatable um, ice, ice structure with a self-supporting ice shell that we uh, worked on with a team at NASA Langley and developed some initial testing, material testing for. Um, there's also a, a regolith-based proposal that I was a team leader for uh, with Search Plus, as well as a former 3D printing collaborator at this core. Um, that also won first prize in the 3D printed habitat competition. So effectively, the, the reason why we were so successful in this competition is we won first prize in both uh, levels of final design for 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 phase one as well as phase three, which is effectively both of the design solicitations that they had. The thing that was unique about this competition is that um, it was both a design competition, meaning an architectural and building information modeling exercise, as well, and they were also asking for construction demonstration uh, examples from from uh, industry leaders within large-scale additive manufacturing who could demonstrate capabilities which would, in the future, apply for a Mars apply within a Mars scenario. Um, in phase two of the competition, they were. Uh, NASA was very invested in looking at, uh, I would say, more heat or polymer ba- heat-based and uh, basalt and polymer-based materials for 3D printing. And then in phase three, the rules changed slightly and were more biased, I would say, towards cementitious solutions, so cementitious additive manufacturing. So I participated with um, Core in that level in that phase of the competition. We were fairly, we were pretty successful in some of the earlier phases, and then Mars X House won first prize in final design within that uh, phase of the of the competition. So overall, it lasted from like 2014 through 2018, um, and many projects spun off from those initial uh, those initial submissions, and it really propelled me as well as others who participated in the competition into a career in both space architecture, but also thinking about how large-scale additive manufacturing can be applied for both Earth and space. Um, Are um, any of the structures really meant to be functional and developed on the Moon or Mars, or or they're sort of theoretical what could be someday, uh, or a derivative might be someday? It's a really good question. I think the there's so much that we don't know relative to transportation, um, relative to other capabilities and other technologies that we would be able to assume would already exist on the Moon and Mars as far as infrastructure is concerned, power, for example, um, that we would have to rely on for autonomous construction of a habitat to even be viable. Like, there's no question that all of these that all of these proposals and all of these design concepts are making some pretty uh, drastic assumptions relative to what will be available as far as the technology and infrastructure is concerned. But <clears throat> excuse me, what I would say is that they are the highest fidelity designs, and they've been developed to the greatest level of detail that we can assume knowing what we know right now and based off of certain assumptions that have been made relative to site infrastructure as well as technology. Um, You have an email question. The first one is uh, listener Todd in San Diego. And he says, um, a couple of days ago, David had Dr. Pascal Lee on the show. I'm not sure if you know Pascal or not, but by the way, he is also a big speaker at ISDC this year. Um, and Pascal, in talking about quite a few things on the show, expressed his opinion that he did not think Mars would become a settlement, a uh, big place to live, despite Musk ideas and Musk rhetoric and Musk talk. And then he spent about 20 to 25 minutes describing the incredible hostility of the, of the soil, the atmosphere, just about everything on Mars and saying it would be incredibly difficult and challenging to try to counter that for humans to have long-term living on Mars. Basic science research and other things would be fine. When you're planning 
or thinking about structures where people might live on Mars, do you consider information like what Dr. Lee put out, or do you see something different that maybe he doesn't see? I so in in my introduction, you you noted that um, I'm very, I'm really looking forward to to a lunar trip or exploring the moon one day. Right, but not I'm, Mars. <laughs> I'm, I'm less I'm less enthusiastic about um, a mission to Mars. Frankly, because I tend to look at it more, well, I, I, I try to be honest about the, what we know and the conditions that we would encounter when we, uh, when, when faced with a Mars mission. First of all, I think the hazards to human health are something that cannot be underestimated. So if we're going to be thinking about this seriously, we have to really acknowledge, like, the dangers and the risks associated with long-term radiation exposure. Um, both in the journey to Mars, but also on the surface. And I mean, he's right. Like the regolith is 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 toxic stuff. It contains perchlorates that are hazardous to human health and cancerous. Um, it's not exactly the most hospitable place to take a trip. So I don't know. And I also don't subscribe to the idea of a one-way trip to Mars either. I think that there is lots that we can do in research that is that depends on robotics and that relies on robotics to get information that we need. I certainly um, ascribe and, and and believe in the idea that someday we will reach Mars, but it's going to take quite a bit of, of work and quite a bit of research to understand exactly what that will mean and what the impacts of the human body actually are. So when I think about um, habitation on the moon, for example, like, the scope of, of my work and the way that I've really limited my uh, in investigations is by thinking of first uh, preliminary infrastructure that we would have to create to ensure a sustainable development in community and small base camp that is actually resilient and durable over the long term and can withstand decades of use without much repair and error maintenance. Um, and then thinking about, you know, unpressurized structures, which can have uh, plenty of uses for both radiation shielding, for electronics, for uh, for for, um, for rovers, and and for other like various uses that we're going to be needing for to protect on on the surface of the moon. And then eventually, of course, we want to be thinking about pressurized habitats, but those those are going to be foundational structures. Um, I don't necessarily, my instinct is not to think about colonization or the creation of large settlements prior to those foundational structures being there and that infrastructure being present. So, like, my incentive to think about long-term human habitation on the moon as well as Mars is not necessarily, like, to expand and create those very uh, sexy, beautiful images of, like, Humans of large civilizations and large settlements, it's really to think about, like, well, what exactly do we have to build from a foundational perspective, and what infrastructure do we need there uh, on, on a first premise before even thinking about um, crews larger than four or crews larger than eight or crews, crews larger than 12 all, um, all, all being there at the same time. So um, you have a caller on hold, but uh, before I give you that caller, um, you're, you're going to be talking about some of this at ISDC, and uh, you've got space advocate settlement fanboys and girls galore there. And there is a huge gap from the way I see your thinking and your planning and your working to what uh, real gung-ho space advocate, settlement, proponent people think, uh, because many of them think we're ready to go today. Um, right. And I'm sure this is not the first time you've realized that there's a gap between what you're talking about and planning and thinking and the way you're doing your work as compared to what people think, uh, especially in, in sort of the space advocate uh, supportive community. And, and you're right in the in the in the heart of it at, at ISDC. How do you how do you address that gap? How, I mean, I mean, you don't want everyone booing you and and 
you know, cussing you out and giving you the finger. I mean, you're you're not supporting their dream and their fantasy on a timeline that they have. So how are you bridging that? This, this is a great question. So I, I feel as enthusiastic as anyone else relative to this work, but I also don't want it to be just a fantasy. I don't, I don't, I can't subscribe to the idea that this is a fantasy. And I feel like if we're serious about space exploration, if we're serious about pioneering habitats on the moon and Mars, that we have to face the facts relative to what, how little we know relative to human health and the risks that are associated to human health. Um, and we've got to be honest about our capabilities today. I think that, like, the grand strides that have been made relative to safe transportation in the last few years, particularly on the commercial side, are going to get us there faster than we've ever imagined before. Um, but we still have a lot of work to do. We have a lot of testing to do. We have a lot to um, get to the point where we have sustainable habitat systems and infrastructure that can withstand the test of time, both on the moon and then eventually Mars. I do believe that we should be implementing these systems uh, and utilizing the moon as a test bed prior to getting to Mars. Um, so I try to be really pragmatic about this and about the time uh, that it will take to get there, although I have no doubt that one day we eventually will. Um, the the timeline to move hundreds if not thousands of people to Mars that, that SpaceX talks about and that others talk about, do you address that timeline? Uh, what do you say about something like that? Because th- th- no way are we moving hundreds if not thousands of people to Mars by the end of the decade or early next decade. No, I agree with you. I don't think it's going to happen within the next decade. I think that the there's a there's a fundamental difference in in establishing a human presence um, on the moon and Mars for the sake of uh, kind of like a backup plan for humanity. Should we be at risk for some kind of um, existential threat to to our survival here on Earth, versus prioritizing the needs of science research as well as human exploration within these extreme contexts. And I think that there's, like, a fundamental um, paradigm shift between the two approaches. So if we really believe, like, humans have an existential threat staying on Earth, um, I can't can't get behind that entirely. I mean, I understand this idea of, like, uh, of, of colonizing the universe and colonizing Mars for the sake of uh, of having this sort of backup plan for us available there and to ensure our survival. But I also, like, I, I fundamentally can't get around the idea that we would be abandoning Earth and abandoning the major crises, crises that we have here on Earth relative to um, how we're treating our, our current environment. And uh, I, I, I just can't uh, get behind the idea that we would be fully abandoning Earth for the sake of of uh, taking tens of thousands of people to Mars. I think that uh, over the long term, we will get there, but there are lots of opportunities, shared opportunities, for technology co-development between Earth and space to resolve our climate crisis, to introduce um, more renewable and sustainable materials for the way that we're processing uh, we're processing things here on Earth, and then also introducing more sustainable means for introducing uh, closed-loop environments and ecosystems. So I think there's a lot of work to do between the work that's happening in space and for space as well as the work that should be happening for Earth to benefit Earth in the short term that will enable us to, to, to approach space exploration and maintain a permanent human presence on the moon and eventually Mars um, in a way that doesn't abandon one for the other. Um, listeners, Pascal and I are doing that on a panel, this subject, or most of this subject. Uh, I believe that panel is 2 o'clock Friday in the Living in Space track, and Rod mm-hmm. Pyle is um, is moderating that panel. So um, I won't tell you what we're thinking about saying, but um, uh, if you're interested in this subject, 
it might be an interesting panel for you to hear. Uh, let's see who your caller is. Uh, good morning, caller. Welcome to the program. Who are you? Where are you, please? Hey, David. It's John in Fremont, California. Hi, John. Welcome to the show. Uh, yeah, thank you. Uh, hi, Melvin. Um, I uh, was wondering, uh, it sounds like um, most of your work is on uh, habitats on the moon or Mars, on surface, surface-based ha- habitats on um, uh, celestial bodies. Uh, are you looking at uh, free space settlements and specifically some with artificial gravity? You know, I haven't really looked at that myself, although I do have colleagues within the space architecture community who have. Um, yeah, it's it's just in the the focus. The focus of my work has been on surface habitats, primarily 3D printed habitats. And uh, what we do at Icon today is we develop. We have a large scale cementitious uh, gantry style printer, which we use for all of our terrestrial applications, and we're also developing a. Uh, uh, heat-based directed energy deposition systems for lunar applications. Um, so that's that's really been the focus of the work that uh, that I've developed and that I continue to develop. Okay, well, um, just wondered. <laughs> I don't have any other questions. Uh, do, do, you, do you think the uh, the conclusions, John, and and the outcome of studying the question uh, on an O'Neill uh, station with artificial gravity would lead to radically different conclusions than what Melody has talked about, especially for Mars? Uh, I'm not sure I understand your question. Um, I, I, I think that, um, you know, there's, there's a problem with gravity that we need to address and understand. And so, um, as far as human health goes and human reproduction, um, it may not be possible to establish permanent colonies uh, or settlements on uh, bodies that have less than one gravity. So, um, you know, we can establish outposts, and we should. We should go full blast and, uh, you know, uh, put habitats and understand how to live and work there, but we'll never settle there unless we can have children. And uh, we need to figure out if we can do that in less than one gravity. So uh, uh, well, you... I, I don't know if I answered your question, but, um, you know, with these these um, uh, wild speculations of millions of people on Mars by 2050, um, are they having children? Well, forget that they're having children. If you heard the show with Pascal and you heard him describe the conditions on Mars, which is why he doesn't think it will ever be a a space settlement place, uh, that's irregardless of people having children or spinning something for artificial gravity. uh, That, you know, if the place is so toxic that it would be unsuccessful for large-scale settlement or living, uh, then whether you have children or not is immaterial. So that's kind of the question. Well, I don't agree. You don't I agree, agree with Pascal? I, I don't because I've, I've seen engineering and solutions to um, the problems that he, he mentioned. So, um, you know, as far as perchlorates in the, in the soil, that can be addressed. Um, there's people working on that. Um, there's engineering solutions for living in, in lava caves and to, uh, you know, if you have unlimited energy, if you've got nuclear power, you can, you can deal with a lot of these problems, uh, and establish settlements there, but you still can't change the gravity. So that's the main problem to me. Um, Melody, so, how do yeah. you, how do you see gravity as an issue for being on the moon or Mars? I think that um, both foundational habitats on the moon as well as an orbiting space station would teach us, and maintaining those for decades into the future would teach us what we need to know prior to establishing the same sort of infrastructure and settlements on Mars. And I think that's the approach that we need to take. Um, 
you know, the work that we do terrestrially in large-scale additive manufacturing, I mentioned this a little bit earlier, it illuminates all of the gaps in our understanding that, and, and all of the problems that we didn't even know that we had to address when we we're engineering solutions. I mean, paper engineering and simulations and analysis is one thing, but building it and testing it is an entirely different matter. So I'm very much of the opinion that we need to prototype solutions here on Earth, test them extensively, and then implement those in orbit, into lunar orbit, and then also on the surface of the moon for long periods of time to ensure that they are resilient and and durable and, and maintainable and then implement those solutions on Mars, or at least variants of those that, that have leveraged our, uh, our learning from all of those experiments. John, any, anything else you would like to add? Uh, well, I could go on for quite some time, but uh, I, I'd love to uh, discuss this more with Melanie at, uh, uh, at ISDC. So um, I'll get off the air and see if someone else wants to call in. Okay, thanks for your call. Um, listeners, John? David, I, I, I should also mention that in addition to ISDC, which is happening in two weeks, I believe, um, I will also be at the Humans to Mars Summit that is happening next week in Washington, D.C., and myself and a few other uh, friends and colleagues will be on a panel discussion that is happening on May 17th titled Civil Engineering and Construction on the Moon and Mars. And we should be talking more about that, on, on more about more on these issues in that panel. The moderator is Sam Burbank. It features myself, Dr. Seamus Chuoni, uh, Dr. Mark Hilberger from NASA, as well as Sam Jimenez from XR Exploration Architecture. And they live stream their events. So, uh, listeners, if you're interested... I believe you can probably find out when it's going to stream, and I don't think there's a charge for the streaming, but uh, maybe I'm in, I'm wrong on that. But uh, if you're interested, um, check it out on the streaming. For sure, they, uh, unlike ISDC, they do archive all of their events and their videos and their presentations. So if you can't get Melody's panel uh, live, you will definitely get get it on uh, on their ar- archives. And um, I, I think that's an incredibly prestigious conference. So uh, probably one of the the most rigorous, most academic, most, if you could use the word official, Mars, pro-Mars conference there is, probably more so even than the Mars Society. But um, uh, that should be a really good panel. So uh, hopefully people will, if they aren't going to the event, will be able to uh, watch it live or see it on archives when they put it up on their uh, on their website page. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, listeners, if you have a question or comment for our guest, you can call us at 866-687-7223, and uh, you can email us at drspace at thespaceshow.com. Um, uh, you did get a, an advanced email from a listener in uh, the UK, and I, I sent it to you. But um, I know he'll be listening to have his questions answered, so uh, maybe we can cover them real quickly, although I think you've covered much of it. Uh, this is from Roger Phelps, and um, uh, what, he's got some interesting position. I forget uh, uh, what it is. He's in Cardiff. Um, anyway, um, he wants to know, um, how did you become a space architect? Yeah, I covered this a little bit earlier, but essentially, um, I, I participated in the NASA Centennial Challenge for a 3D printed habitat on Mars. At that point, my interest in space architecture was truly as a passion project. I don't think any of my, my, neither myself nor my other teammates, uh, had any sort of, uh, understanding of that this would become a fully fledged career for us, but, uh, given our success uh, after repeatedly participating and winning in the NASA Centennial Challenge, um, we started to receive phone calls, and we were consulting for both private aerospace companies as well as NASA on space habitat projects. 
And uh, my my interest in additive manufacturing, as well as human factors, uh, grew in that time. I also I spent uh, about three years at NASA Ames as a contractor working within the Human Systems Integration Division, thinking about the relationship of people with of humans with autonomous systems and uh, human machine interaction, generally speaking. And um, my, I have also practiced as a terrestrial architect for a number of years in New York. And uh, when I joined ICON, I resigned from Space Exploration Architecture, which is a group that I co-founded with others who participated in the Centennial Challenge. Uh, and I was asked to join ICON as uh, to establish an architecture department and think about how we can uh, leverage, well, first deliver projects terrestrially within multiple sectors, such as the DOD for affordable housing and housing at market rates, but also to think about how we can leverage ICOM's uh, technology to 3D print on the moon. So that's, that's how I've been able to merge my terrestrial architectural work with my space architecture practice and, uh, and, and develop these ideas of large-scale additive manufacturing in space. Um, Roger, also, and you've kind of answered this, but I'm going to expand it. Uh, if being a space architect is sort of similar as to designing buildings and things on Earth, and, and you've kind of answered that, but um, everything get, that gets built here, whether it's in the U.S. or Nevada or California or whatever, has to follow building codes, and some codes are obviously stricter than others. But um, I know most of the U.S. codes are pretty standard, and and they are pretty strict if you follow them. Um, Is there anything like building codes for uh, building in space, or is anyone trying to write building codes for building a structure on the moon or Mars, or is that just too early right now to even think like that? I love this question. It's a great question. Um, particularly, well, when it comes to like standards for for spacecraft as well as um, human integration standards for spaceflight, that certainly just NASA has those handbooks available. Um, when it comes to habitat and 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 uh, structure certified for human occupancy on the moon, those frameworks do not yet exist. It depends in large part on, well, many, there's many assumptions that are incorporated within what those foundational habitats should be or would be. And um, I'm really looking forward to a future in which we can introduce um, standards as well as recommendations and guidelines relative to human habitats in both contexts for the moon and Mars. Um, in my case, when it comes to 3D printing and additive manufacturing, there is no international building code relative to this new way of building. Um, it actually, when we permit structures that are additively manufactured using ICON's technology, um, right now we are we are basically following a provision within the IBC, which acknowledges that building inspectors can. Uh, can uh, can approve structures based on that are that are that rely on alternate means and methods of construction as well as materials um, on an individual basis. So we provide all of our engineering data to that building inspector, and then they generate their own engineering judgment. And so far, we haven't had any issue. Um, there's also a number of regulatory bodies that are have written appendices, such as ICCES as well as UL. Um, and so we're starting to think about we're starting to think about building code relative to additive manufacturing, uh, and and of course there will be precedent established by multiple uh, organizations that are thinking about um, engineering guidelines for this way of working and this way of building. But how exactly, such as ACI and others, but how exactly that applies within the space context, like on the Moon and Mars? we have yet to see, and uh, I'm really looking forward to that future. Until then, like, we need to be prototyping habitats, developing analog experiments, and uh, testing these structures on uh, terrestrially before we, before we implement those standards and guidelines for space. 
So we do have experience with orbital stations. So are there building codes for an orbital station that, that could be uh, a space hotel, could be a, a, a smaller O'Neill structure or something like that? Like, uh, are there building codes for the, for the ISS, and could they be extrapolated to a commercial structure? It, the thing is, is that they're not really building codes. The, the standards, the human integration standards relative to how uh, space environments are designed focus predominantly on human factors, and then the way that spacecraft and vehicles are designed um, do not necessarily leverage the kind of structural soundness and uh, and provocations that are typical for terrestrial architecture, Not at least not yet. So I'm... I'm curious and I'm really invested and interested in developing those standards and thinking about how they might apply for both future spacecraft in orbit but also habitats on on the planetary surfaces. Uh, his final question is that um, he is not an architect, but he is a technician for architects, and he's wondering if there's a need for technical people within the space architectural field and if there is, what advice do you have for people who want to get into that technician field? Um, I, if I understand the question correctly, uh, well, there's – yeah, I'm not sure I understand what a technician is relative to architecture, but if, if I were to interpret the question, I would say that there are design architects in industry, and then there are construction architects who are more technically inclined in industry. Um, and then, of course, we have to leverage the support of engineers, uh, both as far as mechanical, electrical, plumbing are concerned, as well as structural engineers, civil engineers. So it's it's really a collaborative approach to building Um and uh, silo, and this goes back to some of what we were discussing earlier, Dr. Livingston, like we have to think about building construction both on Earth and in space as a synthesis of multiple disciplines, not necessarily siloed to engineering or siloed to architectural design. Um, in my work and in my practice, engineering and design go hand in hand, and uh, I think we'll be better off uh over the long term for ensuring our future in space is if we can enable that kind of integrative work. So um, I would say, like, for someone who considers themselves or refers to themselves as a, as a technician, perhaps who has a lot of CAD experience uh, or software experience and perhaps less design experience, um, can follow your passion and, and I think develop the the projects that you feel are most compelling and most interesting to you because we need those ideas to accelerate our thinking of, of for, for and how we will be living for the, over the long term. Uh, listeners, there's still time if you want to hurry and get a call in to Melody, 866-687-7223, or email drspace at thespaceshow.com. Claude in Denver sent in a note, and he said, have you ever given thought to the design and what that might look like and what the features would be on an interstellar hibernation ship for long-term settlement in another solar system, given all the exoplanets that are being discovered. Even Pascal talked about hibernation and interstellar flights. Would you be interested in being involved in that kind of a design project? Oh, I would be super interested. It has not been within the scope of my work to date, just given how much we have been 3D printing and building. But, oh, yes, very, very interested. And I think that there's a lot of room and potential for, for exploration from a conceptual side and also from, uh, from the, as far as design engineering is concerned. Do you, do you think such a, a vehicle is actually plausible? Over the long term, yes. I do. Uh, interesting. Um, what is a set of priorities for a space architect today, like like for yourself, uh, given that everything is probably so long-term out there, but mm -hmm. maybe some of it's a little shorter? How do you 
go about prioritizing your work so that you can see the results of your work? Oh, that's a really interesting question. I think in all of the work that I do, both terrestrially and for space, maintaining an understanding of human factors and ergonomics and is, is top of mind for me and is central to the way that I work. I would consider the methodology that informs my research and also the space architecture and terrestrial architecture work that I do um, is, is really human-centered design and uh, incorporating um, an evidence-based understanding of human needs and requirements given certain contexts and leveraging that information and leveraging that data to make informed decisions relative to spatial conditions, programming, interiors, um, as well as, you know, smaller kind of industrial design scale elements such as fixtures, handles. Um, all of that to me is within the realm of, uh, of the architect. In addition to just thinking about, in addition to thinking about the uh, formal qualities of the space, but also how a structure is designed, how a structure is, uh, is, is engineered, and also, you know, the materials that are utilized. So, I, in some ways, like, there, there are a lot of parallels. Of course, the environmental conditions in space and on Earth are fundamentally different. But the methodology in both design and research that I employ tends, tends to be very similar. Uh, final question is Beverly in Seattle because we're at the at the hour point, um, and she said, "Are there actual architectural programs at decent schools in the United States that have a specialty of space architecture, like in an MBA program? You can specialize in finance or management or economics or something like that. Can you actually do a space architecture?" specialty in an architectural program? Yes, actually. There is one program that I, I highly celebrate. It is at the University of Houston. It is the uh, six-up program in space architecture. They do provide um, master's degrees in space architecture. That uh, program and department is led by Dr. Olga Banova. Um, I have collaborated, hired, and worked with many alumni from that program, and uh, it's, it's absolutely wonderful. But in addition, we're starting to see more space architecture courses and studios offered at various universities. Um, myself, I teach at the Art Center for College, Art, Art Center College of Design, and uh, I offer a space architecture course once a year. This fall, I'll be teaching a Mars studio. I know that there are other programs my friends and colleagues teach at the University of Arizona um, and elsewhere at RISD, for example, uh, as well as other schools. So um, there, is an there is an active space architecture community. I definitely encourage everybody to take a look at the uh, website established by the AIAA Space Architecture Technical Subcommittee, and that is spacearchitect.org. Uh, you will find lots of resources and information on educational programs, courses, as well as a, a very extensive and very impressive bibliography of prior work and research in space architecture by uh, pioneers and, and luminaries within the field. So definitely check that out and you can find some uh, notable projects, research, as well as uh, information on educational programs and conferences. Is there anything we should have talked about with your work or anything else during the hour that, that we've omitted or forgotten or that you would like to add in? Um, let's see. For any information on ICON and what we do developing large-scale additive manufacturing solutions for Earth and space, please do check out iconbuild.com. That is I-C-O-N-Build.com. Uh, we have a number of exciting projects. Uh, that, that we have announced recently. We're taking reservations for a 100-home community based in Texas as well as another community where, uh, sorry, uh, north of Austin, Texas, as well as another community of homes uh, outside of Marfa, Texas. Um, in addition to that, I would encourage everybody, if you're interested in space architecture or would like to reach out to me, please visit my website. That is 
www.melodyyashar.com. Uh, my name is spelled M-E-L-O-D-I-E-Y-A-S-H-A-R.com. Um, and please feel free to reach out to me if any of this is of interest to you or you would like to uh, have, have a conversation later on. Okay, and I will look forward to uh, seeing you and actually meeting you for the first time in person at ISDC. So um, it's not a far drive. I guess you, you drive that one rather than fly, but uh, I look forward to yeah. seeing Yeah, I wish I could drive it since Southwest is now threatening to go on strike. So, boy, whatever they can do to, to screw people over, they, they do it. But anyway, um, we'll see you there. And uh, listeners, if you're going and you want to meet up with uh, Melody, find her and introduce yourself and tell them, Tell her you heard about her on the space show. I, again, look forward to uh, seeing you and enjoy your travels up to the Mars conference. And um, look forward to seeing you at the end of May in uh, Frisco, Texas. And that's right. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you for being here. Listeners, that's it. Uh, remember, no show on Sunday due to Mother's Day. And uh, back on Tuesday with Becca regarding volcanoes on Venus. Everybody have a great long weekend and a great Mother's Day family weekend. And thank you for listening to the Space Show. As always, listeners, keep looking up. Goodbye from Melody, David, and the Space Show.